We're here at Serve Day 2023 on campus right now, but with folks all over the Metroplex serving our community, loving on our neighbors, and really just having an amazing day. We're the fighters. We won't stop, won't quit, no matter the cost. We've got a bunch of seventh grade boys, about 30 of them, and families that are helping uh, go through the dog park community here at Bear Creek Dog Park. And we're real excited about sharing the love of Jesus, being the hands and feet through picking up trash of all things. Keep keeping on. So we're out here at Oak Grove Park. We have about 60 different people from all across 121. And we're just going around picking up trash. It's great to see the kids out here. It's a perfect opportunity for them to see what their, their differences are making as they're picking up trash and making our world a better place. Lord, we're just grateful for that opportunity. Um, Lord, thank you for the teachers and the admin and the students that uh, that are at this school. Um, Lord, we just ask that uh, you work in and through them. Silver Lake Elementary and GCISD, and we are changing a garden into an outdoor classroom. We've got a great group of volunteers, and we are knocking this project out. We've made it to the highest heights, singing, oh mama, oh mama. We've got about uh, 40 volunteers putting together about 750 food boxes for Six Stones, a neighborhood. We're doing a birthday box this year, lots of Thanksgiving boxes to put together, so we're able to feed people who need it. stuffing all these eggs today with some non-perishable candy that we'll put in a, a climate controlled storage and then come March be ready because then we're going to ask for chocolate and yummy candy donations to where we can fill the rest of them. The goal is to have 38,000 eggs this year for our kids to find so stay tuned. They prepare the eggs upstairs and put in the boxes we're going to take them over to the temperature controlled storage so they're going to be ready for Easter. We're at Grace Food Pantry today, and we had a lot of food donated. Thank you guys so much for all of the generosity. We have our volunteers here who are putting everything away and getting that ready to go onto the shelves so that people in need can come and pick up food whenever they're hungry. Cleanup. The cleanup has all these different types of buses, shower buses, clothing buses, Barbara buses, classroom buses that go out in the community when there are need for those different things. So today we're actually just helping them get their supplies together for some of their upcoming events that they're supporting.
got about 10 cars so far. Had a great surf day, beautiful weather, beautiful people. We need more cars to come, but you know what? We're more than willing to wash and serve. We started this morning by sending out a little less than 100 breakfast burritos to Colleyville and South Lake Fire and Police. And we've invited Grapevine Fire and Police to come by the church and grab a bite. Hopefully every morsel of food that we have is gone by the time we're done today. I want to give a shout out to all the volunteers who came out today. Just a tremendous opportunity to love on our community and uh, all for the love of Christ. Thank you so much for uh, serving last week. It was an incredible uh, day. It was really just a spectacular day and uh, being out in the community and um, just really being the love of Christ uh, as we go. So thank you for being a part. Thanks for all the site captains who led the charge and uh, Brian uh, Bachman and uh, Denise Spain and so many others that just uh, led in an overall effort. So grateful uh, for our church and uh, what God's doing. So thank you for being a part of that. Uh, Lisa and I were a part of something we had never heard of before that we were invited into on Serve Day, and uh, you may or may not be familiar with it. In Fort Worth, there's a, a restaurant called The Taste Project, uh, and their vision that they started in 2017 was to have a restaurant that served uh, nutritious food uh, for everybody. They believe everybody should have access to nutritious food. Uh, and the concept is when you get your ticket after you eat, uh, it has no prices on it. Uh, and all you have at the bottom is a donation. Uh, and the, the model is uh, you pay what you can, uh, you pay what you typically pay, or you pay what you typically pay plus a little extra. Uh, and it has worked. I mean, yet homeless people next to people who uh, were clearly more affluent and everything in between. Uh, and just a really beautiful picture of, of serving. It's 80% volunteer run. Uh, the chefs uh, are uh, paid. It's one of the top uh, 100 restaurants in Texas. Uh, and so if you ever have an opportunity to go eat there, it's a way to support what's going on. Uh, also a great way to volunteer uh, and to serve. I waited tables uh, for a few hours and uh, and I, I wish I would have waited tables at some point in my life. I, I, think, I think everybody ought to do that, uh, is, is to serve that way. You, you meet a wide spectrum of, uh, of people and uh, opportunity. So uh, just incredibly grateful for uh, that opportunity. If you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10, uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 15 as we pick up our run uh, through the book of Joshua. Uh, if I could, I want to just uh, say a couple of things from the New Testament uh, to help us uh, think about Joshua in the Old. In, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, uh, Paul is writing his letter to the Romans. He gets to the end of the letter, uh, and he writes to them, and he says, Hey, when, when you think about the scripture that's already been written, uh, it has been written for you for instruction, for perseverance, and for encouragement. So, so when we read Joshua, for example, we're reading it for instruction, 
We're reading it for encouragement, and we're reading it to help us persevere uh, in the challenges and things that we have in life. And then it's also written so that we might have hope. When we read in the Old Testament, when we're in Joshua, we're looking for encouragement, endurance, and hope from what's been written to us in earlier times. And then in Luke chapter 24, uh, verses uh, 44 and following, uh, and I'm sorry it's not on the screen, I didn't have it uh, prepped, but I want to draw our attention to it. Uh, Luke 24, 44, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, and now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So we're, we're asking God to open our minds to the scriptures so that we can understand today uh, what it is that he's saying. And Jesus said that all of the scripture was written about him. When he, when he says in verse 44, these things are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and then verse 46, thus it's written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. So when we read scripture, whether you're reading it on your own, in your own time with God, whether you're in a life group, uh, community, what you're always looking for in the scripture is how does it speak about Jesus and the death and resurrection of Christ? Because Jesus himself said, this was written about me. So the Old Testament is always pointing us to Jesus. The Gospels are about Jesus, and everything after the Gospels are pointing back to Jesus. So as we read today, let's think about how this points us uh, to Christ, to his death and his resurrection. Now, quick summary for those who might be newer here or you've missed some. We're working our way through Joshua. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is our summer Bible study, uh, God is preparing the people for entrance into the land which he had promised them back in Genesis chapter 12, hundreds of years before. When we get to Joshua 1, we recognize that Moses will not be the one who leads them into the land. He prepared them to move into the land, but he would not be the one. Joshua, who the way we would talk about it today, shadowed Moses for years and watched how he led, watched his relationship with God. Now it was Joshua's time to step in and lead the people into the land that God had promised. God promised him. He made it really clear in the beginning that he didn't need to be afraid. He could take courage. He just needed to keep his eyes, his heart, and his mind fixed on Jesus, on God, on the Word of God, uh, in verses 8 and 9. Uh, and then we start to see it unfold. They cross the Jordan River. They then defeat Jericho for the first city that they would conquer and take. Then they're defeated at Ai. They come back and realize there's sin in the camp. Then they go back. They take care of the sin. Now they go back. They defeat Ai. And, and then they get deceived in chapter 9 by the Gibeonites. We talked to them a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that's where we find ourselves now. Now, when we read a book of the Bible like this and we keep going straight through it, we can start seeing patterns and rhythms that develop that we might miss if we just went and read Joshua 6 about the battle of Jericho. We might miss quite a bit that's gone on around it. But one thing that I've noticed in the flow of Joshua is a rhythm uh, of pauses. 
And we find that they, they cross the Jordan River and then they pause and they take care of some things with God. There's the battle at Jericho and then Ai and they pause to take care of sin. Then they defeat Ai and they pause and they renew who they are as the people of God and the law of God. They read and they get reset even after a victory. So there's this rhythm of action and then pause. And I think that's a rhythm that we're invited into as we look throughout the rest of Scripture and the way Jesus rolled. That we, we're moving, we're, we're action-driven in obedience to the Lord, and then we pause, just like we are here, and we worship God, and we get reset on who we are as the people of God as we move back out in obedience to Him. Now, I'd like for us to think this morning uh, in Joshua 10 about this question. What makes for a spectacular day? I think last Sunday was a spectacular day for our church out in the community for God's glory in His name. But what makes for a spectacular day? Now, last Sunday night, I think it made for a spectacular day for what local baseball team? And then on Monday night, they had another spectacular, it was two spectacular days as they advanced to the World Series. And then Friday night was another spectacular day for the Texas Rangers. My brother was at the game and he said, I couldn't believe the number of people that left in the bottom of the eighth. How many times have we missed out on the spectacular because we're not willing to sit and endure what might not be that spectacular in the moment? Those people missed a two-run homer that tied the game. They missed a homer in the bottom of the tent that won the game. What a night. I would be sick to my stomach if I was in a car in the parking lot and missed it. How many times do we miss those days, though? But that's easy to look at a sporting event and say, what makes a spectacular day? But what about in relationship with God makes for a spectacular day? Let's look at Joshua. There's four things that I see that are helpful here. Uh, you might read this and break it down a different way. Uh, this is the way that, that I would understand today uh, to think about this part of God's Word. Uh, and, and I believe that a spectacular day that can happen in God's realm is when help comes. Let me go from here in, in verses 1 through 7. It'll make sense. Why would we even need help? Why would that make for a spectacular day? Uh, and I think it's clear here. Verse 1, now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai. And he had utterly destroyed, destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. Now, the, the name of this king of Jerusalem, so we're on the other side of the Jordan River, we're in the land that God's promised, uh, it's occupied by a number of Amorite, Canaanite kinds of people, uh, and there's different, uh, more like cities that these are kings of, more than they're king of a nation. Uh, and this is a king of Jerusalem, his name, Adonazedek, uh, comes from the word Adonai, which means Lord which we read again and again throughout uh, the scripture. And the word Zedek means righteousness. So this king's name is Lord of Righteousness. But he's a poser. He's not a righteous Lord or king. Uh, 
He, he is against God. He has led people in opposition to God. And he's been a part of child sacrifice. There have been a number of horrific things uh, that these kings would have been a part of uh, in this time, in this land. Now, we can do a counter to this Adonazedek when we go back to Genesis 14 and we're introduced to a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is king, Zedek, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. He's described in Genesis 14 as a priest and a king of the most high God. His name was fitting for him. This other king's name was not. Verse 2, Adonazedek, though, he feared greatly uh, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Now, again, in chapter 9, the Gibeonites uh, were near to where Israel had crossed into the land. Israel didn't know that, and the Gibeonites deceived Joshua, uh, and then they land in a covenant treaty with each other uh, as a result of that deception. The Gibeonites, though, were a great city, uh, and they had valiant warriors, just like Israel did. Uh, And uh, there is a fear now among Adonazedek in the region uh, that now that Gibeon has defected to Israel, uh, they don't want anybody else to defect. And how are they going to come against now Gibeon and Israel? Now, let me give you a good picture today of what this would be like. Think NCAA. And think this last year, when there have been a number of defections from conferences, because they no longer believed that conference would be sufficient for them, make enough money for them, be a protection for them in the future. And so they've moved to a conference where they'll align and have more money, more protection by being in that conference and a future of success. Does that connect? That's what Gibeon's done. They've defected to Israel. They were, they're not in line with all these other uh, regions now uh, that uh, are about to be taken by Israel. So therefore, Adonazedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word, and, and I'll read these just for fun, uh, to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, so it's four of them, saying, come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon for it's made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So let's, let's go. Let's unite together uh, the five of us and then we can take on the two of them, uh, Israel uh, and Gibeon. Verse 5, so these five kings, I'll not read them a second time, gathered together and went up. They went with all their armies and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Now, when Joshua unfolds, we see this happen different times. He'll actually give a summary of what's already happened before he gives the detail. So he's saying they fought against it, but now we'll actually get the detail of that fight. Verse 6, then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Joshua had made a covenant with Gibeon, an oath he'd sworn to them. 
Gibeon is in a space now where they know they're in trouble because they have these five kings, these other parts of the region, about to fight against them. They're now servants of Israel, and so they reach out to Joshua for help. Spectacular days often follow when we're in trouble and we actually reach out for help. Now keep in mind, Gibeon was a a great city and they had valiant men, but they were not afraid to reach out for help when they needed help. He said, don't abandon us, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. They were asking for help. Verse 7. Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Gilgal is that base of operations for Israel. Remember, Gilgal means rolling away disgrace. What a cool thing that every time Israel would go back to base camp, the very name of where they were going would be a reminder that their disgrace had been rolled away and that now they were in that place that God had promised them of deliverance. So Joshua comes, they're willing to go to war, uh, and he's going to honor the covenant. Now, when we think about this for a moment, so when, when help comes, that's oftentimes when spectacular days follow. When we think about where the help comes from, God is the sender of our help. Uh, in Psalm 46.1, it says that God is our help. He, he is a very present help in times of trouble. So God ultimately is who we lean into for our help when we're in trouble. And we go to him and we seek him out. Now, what does God do? Oftentimes, he sends people our way to be our help. He might send somebody in our own family to be a help. He he might send somebody that's a friend to be a help. He he might provide a counselor that'll be a help. He might provide somebody in a life group as a whole that rallies around and is the help in this season of need and trouble. This is what God does. Now, who are our enemies today? Adonis Zedek, he united four others, so there was five. It was a united group against the two, Gibeon and Israel. Who are our enemies today? Now, certainly it's an easy leap for us today to think about the Middle East and to know now that our U.S. troops are actively engaged in activity against the militia of Iran. Israel is in battle. So we can imagine what it's like to have enemies to be in a fight physically like we're speaking of here. There's another kind of war front that we're all on. And while we may not be across the world in the Middle East, right here we have a uniting of three enemies against every one of us. When when we awakened this morning, there was a full-on war against us, three united enemies, Satan, he's a deceiver, 
attacker, schemer, doing any and everything he can to wipe you out and you out and to wipe me out. He works together with the world, the world that is opposed and hostile to God. He's working in concert with it. It's why we see across our culture an increasing hostility against God. We see actually what Isaiah wrote in chapter 5, verse 20, when he said that in their day, and it's the same in our day, that good is being called evil and evil is being called good. It's almost like Satan has just laid a blanket over our country and blinded and deluded us so that we no longer think straight. Satan is working with the world as an enemy against those who are followers of God. But there's a third enemy. Satan works with the world and then he stirs what the Bible calls the flesh within us. I'm not talking about our skin flesh, but flesh is referred to as our sin nature and that remaining sin that's there even after we know Jesus. And there are inclinations within all of us towards particular sin that Satan works with the world and then stirs up within our own flesh to destroy us. John Owen, the Puritan writer, said he prayed often, and I've joined in his prayer many times, God, today will you kill sin so it doesn't kill me? Sin will actively kill us and destroy us. Satan works with our flesh and the world on a united front to wipe us out. We have a formidable enemy. We are not in domestic times ever in our spiritual lives. Ever. We are always in battle. Spiritual battle. But God is a help and a provider of help for those battles. When we battle loneliness, depression, anxiety, addictions, when we're sinned against, when we sin, God brings in help. And it gives us hope and perseverance, as Paul wrote in Romans 15, and whatever's happening. Well, there's a second thing that we see here that I think is really helpful to have a spectacular day, and, and it's in verse 8. And this is really, uh, to me, the pinnacle of what's happening in this particular story. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. This reminds us of chapter 1 in Joshua, verse 3, where from the very outset, God said to Joshua, I've given the land to you. Wherever the sole of your foot treads, I've given you that land. He's reassuring him here as Joshua uh, comes to the aid of the Gibeonites, and God just tells him and reassures him, hey, you don't need to fear because I've given them into your hands. Not one of them will stand before you. Now, one of the things that we talk often about here is when God teaches us something, it's not intended to stay with us. It's intended to be passed on. 
Joshua models that. God has said to him, here, don't, be a, don't fear them. And then in, chapter, in verse 25 of chapter 10, Joshua passes on to the people what God had said in, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that's a reflection of this in verse 8, and he tells them not to fear, be dismayed, but to be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So he's passing on to them. He doesn't just hold that God told him to, to not fear, but he's telling everybody else, be strong and courageous. You don't have to fear today because God is the one. He's got your back. God is the one who's fighting the battles. In Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, it says, When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, I will put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? God is our help, and he's the one that removes fear. Now one side note in what's happening here with Joshua. Chapter 9, the Gibeonites deceived him. He entered into a covenant with them that he was not supposed to do. It was a major failure. But we saw the grace of God at the end of chapter 9 and we see the grace of God right here. Because right after his failure, there's victory. It's here. Get up. We failed. But let's go. We're going to walk ahead in victory. And God does that. He takes our failures. That's God's grace. He doesn't make us sit there and wallow in our shame or guilt. Although we'll sometimes do that, he's removed that from us so that we can walk ahead without fear. And we can walk in victory. That's available to us in the grace and mercy of God. It makes for a spectacular day when I've failed and I know that he gets me right back up. And and scripture also says that the Lord has established our steps and he delights in his ways. When he falls, he'll not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. He picks us up. He don't fear Let's move ahead. It's it's a spectacular day when there's no fear. The third thing that I think makes for a spectacular day is when God himself intervenes, verses 9 through 11. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. Now, if if you remember when when they crossed the Jordan River, God said that he was uh, going to make a way for them, uh, and they had to take the first step, though. The river's flowing, it's flood season, but the priest steps his foot into the river. When he does, then God holds the river back and they cross. It's not, oh, the river stopped, let's go across. No, you might not get to see beyond the next step. Take the step. So Joshua's been assured there's no fear, he knows he's going to win. But he has to start marching. And so all night long, they step and they march and they head towards the battle. In verse 10, he had no idea how God was going to intervene. He just knew God said, I've given them into your hands. And then God did it in a way that none of us would expect. 
And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Machida. As they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, we've talked about this, and we'll continue to do so because I know I have different people in each time we gather. But these things can be bothersome to people, the way God did what he did. Some people look and say, well, God is a God of, of wrath in the Old Testament, and he's a God of grace in the New Testament. No, all, all through the Old Testament is the grace and the loving kindness of God. The, the wrath of God is not like our wrath. As a norm, when we're angry and wrathful, we're a bit out of control. God's wrath is not out of control. It is a measured anger against sin. And there is a point where God says, no more. In Genesis, he said that the full measure of sin for the Amorites has not yet come. He gave them, these are the Amorites, he gave them centuries to repent and turn to himself. But they've continued to chase after other gods and to do vile things in their culture. And God is bringing judgment on them for their hostility and opposition to him as he brings the children of Israel into the land that he has for them. This isn't the first time that God has used hailstones to make a point. Do you remember the other? Moses delivered Israel. God chose him to deliver them from Egyptian slavery. But the Pharaoh hardened his heart again and again. Moses would go back and God would do and bring a plague. And one of the plagues that he brought on the Egyptians was hailstones on them. And can you imagine the look on the face, the faces of the Israeli soldiers? They marched all night long. Now watching God intervene in a way they never could have imagined. And it appears the hailstones were targeted at the enemy. And God brings them to victory. The last thing I would say about a spectacular day, this was already a spectacular day for them, a victory and a triumph. But the fourth thing I'd say is that we have spectacular days when prayers are answered. When help comes, when fear is gone, when God intervenes and when prayers are answered. We're talking about spectacular days that, that God brings about. In verses 12 through uh, 14, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ahalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? 
And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is a miracle that happens. And it's in answer to the prayer of a man. And the scripture said there was no day like it where God listened to the voice of a man like he did on this day. It's a spectacular day when we come to God with bold requests. And he responds in the way that he does. I want to say something about miracles for a moment. This is a miracle. We oftentimes give miracle status to things that are not miracles. A quarterback throwing a 60-yard pass into the end zone with no time left on the clock and his guy catches it is not a miracle. It is a guy who stepped back, has a really great arm, threw it 60 yards, somehow the defenders fell down, the ball got deflected, something happened, and the guy came up with the catch. And call it what you want, but it's not a miracle. We see things day in and day out, it's little things. We'll say, well, that was a miracle that that happened. It's not a miracle. Let's define a miracle. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, he created everything. He spoke into existence what is. That's a miracle. God designed the natural laws that govern our universe. And every time over the centuries that scientists have made a discovery about the way our world works and attribute it to this particular law, all we're doing is saying, look at what God did. We're only discovering what God created and the way he put it in motion, which makes science and God incredible partners, not opposites. Because everything we discover in science that's legit, God has already done. We're just getting to see more and more detail as time passes of how God did things. And what it ought to elicit is not an opposition, but rather what the psalmists say, what it ought to elicit in us is a praise for the awesomeness of the works of God, that the heavens are declaring the glory of God and their expanse is telling of his works. So a miracle is when a natural law is superseded by a supernatural work of God. It's when something that is a natural law is overcome and it's a supernatural moment that God does. There is a way that our universe works and flows. There's a way that the earth rotates. There's a way that the sun functions and the moon functions that God has set up. And in this moment in time, God did something supernatural 
And he intervened in the natural way of things. Now, in our human nature, we want to be able to explain what it is that God did. And some would say that what happens, the earth stopped rotating. Others might say there was a refraction of light. Some would say they don't really believe this is literally true. They would say that it's figurative. But what I would say today is, is that what God did here is he answered a man's prayer. He did something miraculous. I don't know how he did it. I am a finite human being, and we are following an infinite God. And whatever happened, the writer says, the sun stopped, and there wasn't any day like that before or after it. Something stunning happened on that day, and God did it. When we think about what God does, we think about Jesus. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Whether visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in fact, everything has been created through Jesus. And when there's natural laws moving along or something supernatural happens and supersedes the natural, it's Jesus who holds all things together, and we need not fear. He's before all things, and in him all things Hold together. God is a sovereign God who involves humans in what he's doing. And he gives us the option, the privilege to be able to pray and to seek him out. So when prayers are answered, how, how do we pray? In Psalm 37, 4, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, Joshua was in line with God. He continually seek out God. Now what we've seen again and again is if he would not seek out God, he ran into all kinds of trouble. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Meaning the more and more we delight ourselves in God himself, the more our hearts will be aligned with what the will of God is. And then when we ask really big things, we're asking in line with what God's will is. Joshua was walking under the promise and premise that God had given him the land. So when he asked God to ask for the sun to stand still at Gibeon, he was asking something that was big, and who knows how God was going to do it, but this is what he asked, and it was in line with what God's will was. But we only know the will of God as we delight ourselves in him and enjoy him. And as we do that, we'll see more and more things that are yeses, but sometimes God's answer is no. In this case, it was yes. Lorraine Holland is uh, on our staff, and uh, she leads uh, our ladies. And uh, I asked her if I could share, uh, she shared this story with me. I asked her if I could share it with you, and I just think when we think about Asking big, uh, this is 
an example today. Lorraine's dad has dementia, uh, and it's been in very difficult stages for a while now. Um, And I know for a number of you, and I know our own family, uh, that dementia is uh, a part of somebody's life, and it is, uh, it's awful uh, to walk in. But she was asking God, they went to a family camp last summer, and she just, she asked God, uh, in the midst of her dad's confusion and agitation, uh, he was going to that camp uh, with her, uh, and she asked God uh, if she could just have uh, a spiritual connection with her dad uh, during that camp. And she said, during the week, uh, God answered so beautifully, because her dad was more mobile than he's been. Uh, there was a connection uh, with him. But she described the, the big moment for her was in a, a worship time with her dad. And the song, uh, 10,000 Reasons, was a song they were singing. And she said she was closing her eyes and she was singing and worshiping God. And where her dad was positioned around her, uh, she began to just hear him clearly singing that song. And it was such a rich moment for her uh, just to hear her dad so clearly declare that before God. And for her, it was a way that God loved on her in that moment. That, that was a spectacular day for her. In the midst of a lot of days that aren't so spectacular. You, you see, we might say that she hasn't left in the bottom of the eighth. We stay in those hard ones, and then we get some spectacular days in those. We've seen spectacular days when people come to faith in Christ, when marriages that are on the brink of divorce, that God has reached in and reconciled and rescued. When friendships that have been destroyed because of destructive conversation have been renewed, restored under the forgiveness of God. Young ladies who thought they would never have a baby able to have one or more. Those are spectacular days. When God gives those. When somebody who is addicted to some destructive behavior, they find freedom after years, that's a good day. That's a spectacular day. When God steps in. But as we roll through Scripture, There's a few other days that are pretty spectacular. There was a Friday that was a spectacular day. And it looked like 
Satan had united all the forces of the world and the flesh to rise up to take Jesus out on that old rugged cross. But it was on that cross that all fear is gone because Jesus destroyed the works of the devil on the cross. He overcame the world on the cross and he took on your sin and my sin on the cross. Instead, that becomes a place of triumph because God intervened when we needed help and we didn't even know we needed it. But there's a, another spectacular day that follows that spectacular day, and it was a Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. And that is what gives us hope today, is that Jesus conquered sin and death. And in the same way that Jesus did, we know that the sin that's in our own lives that we're dead in, that God himself can raise us from the dead in our sin and be made alive in Christ. That was a spectacular day. But that wasn't it because there were several days later in Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit of God was unleashed and every person that repents and believes what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross now receives the Holy Spirit of God within. So we have a constant presence of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. But there's an even more spectacular day to come, and there's going to be a day when all the mess that we're in right now, when that day gets taken care of because Jesus is coming back, flanked by the clouds and by the angels playing their trumpets. And he's going to gather from the east and the west, the north and the south, all of his elect, all of those that are his. But there's even a better day that's going to follow that one. Because there's going to be a final judgment day and everything's going to be made right and then all things made new. And that will be a spectacular day because there will be no more sin to deal with, no more Satan to deal with, no more pain to deal with. We'll have entered into the new heavens and the new earth and it will be one spectacular day after another. There won't be an average day. There won't be a bad day. There won't be a good day. There won't be a normal day. Every day, every minute will be a spectacular day. And that's only for those that have personally had a spectacular day of believing personally what Jesus Christ did for you. Will you be able to enjoy those triumphant days ahead in Christ? Or maybe today's that day for you. I hope this morning will be a time to be grateful for those days in the past that have been spectacular ones. And a hope in the future for those to come. Father, thank you for uh, your word today. Love the victory that we have in Christ, thank you that we can be so encouraged in Joshua, um, in just seeing the way that you send help. And God, I don't know what it is that people need help for today. My hunch is a lot of us do. Will you give us humility uh, to come before you helpless and powerless and to ask just like the Gibeonites asked Israel and Joshua, they said, we, we need your help to come save us and deliver us.
Those were valiant, mighty men that did that, God. Will you help us do the same? And Father, I pray that we might claim the promise today that we don't have to fear, that we can take courage. So will you give us courage today and, and help us overcome fear wherever that might be? And God, will you intervene in ways that are beyond what we could ever imagine in whatever the scenarios are that we're in? And then, Father, will you help us to have the courage to ask big prayers, to not be afraid of it, and then to see what you want to do in it? Father, will you help us, as Paul wrote in Romans, to endure, to be encouraged. And Father, I pray for hope today. And I thank you that if we can't see it anywhere else, we'll just see it in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Thank you for the most spectacular day of all, at the cross, with the resurrection. Thank you for your spirit. And Jesus, we just thank you that we have something to look forward to in your return. Or if you come to get us before then, what a great day that'll be whenever we transfer to you. And then we thank you for that which is ahead, that ultimate triumph and victory when we'll walk in the new heavens and new earth in your presence forever. So this morning, Father, I pray you'll meet us in the depth of our hearts. And then as we close out in this song, I pray that it will just cause our hearts to leap with praise at the awesomeness of your deeds and your works in the midst of our struggles and challenges in the way you bring help to those.